1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Roll sound. Roll camera. Ready, boys? Quiet, please. Where? West scene 12, take one. about the size of the audiences i've been a little disappointed and they said could you persuade stan and ollie to do some publicity in order to turn the tour around would there be any more money they said no well, who is they people the worst kind here we are the eiffel tower <laughs> how is oliver mm, he pulling weight how's your knee it hurts it's even pushing you a little too hard babe no you could have long time ago said goodbye oliver that's all in the past. You're not oh. still carrying that around, are you? Because I went ahead and did a picture with someone else 16 years ago. You and Harry are just going to be great together. Couldn't sleep for days when they told me what you did. And I couldn't sleep when I did it. You betrayed me. Betrayed our friendship. I loved us. You loved Laurel and Hardy. But you never loved me. The doctors told me I can't continue with the tour. My heart won't take it. He asked me, since you were sick, if I wouldn't mind carrying on the show with somebody else. May I introduce to you Mr. Nobby Cook? You're not leaving, are you, Stan? The show must go on. That was pure magic. It's brilliant. We'd like to finish now with a little dance. You sure? I can do it. I'll miss us when we're gone. So will you. What time is it now? All this. Do we really need that trunk?
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again joined by my good friends, Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Hi, Paul. Hey, happy to be here. I'm happy to have you guys again. And the reason they're here this time, well, they're, they're here because I like recording shows with them, but the, re- the, the excuse to have them on this time is that we had been chatting that we all were excited about seeing and all did see the movie Stan and Ollie, uh, which came out, when did it come out exactly? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it the week between Christmas and New Year's? Right around there. Well, it's, it says, I'm just looking at the uh, on the wiki page, it says October 21st, 2018, and then in parentheses it says BFI. I don't know exactly what that means. That's the uh, premiere at the British Film Institute. Okay. That's where they had the opening. Then it opened in the United States on December 28th of 2018, which says to me they had aspirations that this would get some Academy Award consideration, and they wanted to get it in before the end of the year. Yeah, it should have. It probably (laughs) should have. I I think it should have at least been nominated for a few things. I Uh, do, too. And then in the United Kingdom, it was released on January 11th, 2019. So it had three different release dates according to Wikipedia. Uh, and I'm going to just give the details really quickly. It, the running time is 97 minutes. The budget on it is a very modest $10 million. Uh, the box office, according to Box Office Mojo, is $21.8 million, so it's only a modest success. Uh, the movie is directed by John Baird, written by Jeff Pope. Starring Steve Coogan, John C. Riley, and other people, but really those are the two guys. Absolutely, and, you know they 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 carry this film. And in fact, uh, I I, I want to give both of them credit because they both really did well in it. But Steve Coogan kind of ca- carried the movie. Oh, he in my was opinion, outstanding. Magical, yes. Yeah. Uh, this movie, just to give my quick impression on it, I found it to be utterly charming and bittersweet. That's the, the best way I could describe it. Yes. <laughs> we, we have both of those words written down on our top line, <laughs> on our notes. <laughs> okay, and that's without comparing notes. Uh, I, I enjoyed this movie. I was, I, I, I was never moved to tears, but I did get choked up a couple of times during it. Uh, uh, we, we shed enough tears for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really found it to be, to be kind of heartwarming. Um, I thought it was a loving tribute to two actors whose work I've enjoyed very much over the years, and we've talked about. Uh, anybody listening who hasn't heard it, uh, the three of us discussed uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers, also known as Babes in Toyland, uh, a while back, and discussed then our love of Laurel and Hardy. And this is just, you know, when I, just before this came out, one of my friends forwarded me the trailer from YouTube. Because I hadn't even heard that they were making this movie. And I watched the trailer and I was mesmerized. And I said, I have to see this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I, I bet you guys felt exactly the same way. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, when I didn't know this movie was in production, sort of like you. I, so I started hearing about it not long before it came out. And just like you, I saw the trailer and I just thought, oh, I've got to see this as soon as it's out. It just looks wonderful. Now this this is 
again, it's kind of a loving tribute to the to the two. Uh, judging from the box office, I'm going to guess that people listening may not have seen it yet. I I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I strongly recommend it. Uh, I'm not going to give you my Jaws rating yet, but I'm going to. I think it's pretty clear that I was enchanted <laughs> by it. Um, it pick it it picks up the story of Laurel and Hardy in their later years. Uh, we start off with with a scene. Uh, they're filming the movie Way Out West, which is actually one of the movies that I've enjoyed over the years very much. In fact, the dance sequence that they're doing in there, I've always enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, very much. I always got a big kick out of it, uh, and it, it's interesting to see the the way they did it with the uh, you know with the the painted background and everything. Yeah. Um, and then it you know, Laurel is having a an argument with Hal Roach about his contract, but. Ali is still under contract, and that's something, you know, I did a little bit of research into this afterwards, and that's something that apparently Hal Roach engineered from the start, that their contracts were six months apart, so that they could never unify in their contract negotiations. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He was a deceptive man. <laughs> what was what was the word that, that Laurel used when he called him? I can't something with a P. I can't remember. It's even oh, in the trailer. Yeah. He told him to look it up. <laughs> yeah, that's <Yes>. right. <laughs> and w- the way they're presented here, and I think I think it's pretty accurate. The way they're presented here, Laurel is the more thoughtful, business-like of the two. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Hardy is more kind of going with the flow. He's not, you know, he's far from a simpleton, but he's just like, he doesn't want to be bothered. He just wants to go about his craft. He's got some health problems. Again, it's later in their their careers. And uh, according to what I read, his weight ballooned up to 350 pounds at one point. Mm -hmm. So he was having some trouble, you know, maneuvering around the stage, doing the dancing that they were doing. Uh, You know, it said, you know, there were points where he was, uh, you know, having difficulty even walking across the stage at some points. So, you know, he he just wanted to to live his life. Uh, he John Riley in the role is almost unrecognizable. Yeah, the makeup is phenomenal. Yeah, oh, yeah, I agree. You you can't see where it's makeup, where it begins, and where it ends. And that's something when I was reading up on this that the director and the writer uh, emphasized. They said they didn't want you know they wanted to be able to put close ups in there, but they didn't want people to be able to say, okay, you know, that's a prosthetic chin or whatever. And they really, you know, they emphasized it. And I, I, I don't even know if maybe they did a little bit of CGI to clean up some of the makeup because you really couldn't see it at all. The only way, well, the only connection I saw to John C. Riley was you could occasionally hear it in his voice. Hmm. 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 That's, I'll have to, the next time I'll rewatch it, I'll have to pay attention to that because it's a movie worth rewatching. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Uh, now you you guys just saw it the one time. We've seen it actually. We saw it in the theater, and then we just rewatched it two nights ago on streaming, so we could be ready to talk about it again. So we've seen it twice. Okay, I only saw it the once. I didn't even know it was available for streaming yet. It's available at least on Amazon. So we streamed it on Amazon uh, the other night. It's not on Amazon Prime where it's free, but you can rent it. Okay, well, I'm I'm going to be getting a copy of this at some point because I really just enjoyed it so much. Um, yes, too. And I I agree, Paul, with what you were sort of saying with your research. That's what I had always heard too. You know, it's sort of the reverse of how their characters are. That 
Stan Laurel, he was the businessman and the script writer. And uh, I, so that's, yeah, he was the one that was really the driving force of them. And just like you said, Oliver Hardy was much more, you know, just sort of like he says in the movie, he was, he was an actor and he liked for people to like him and he liked acting and that's all he wanted to do. Yeah. And they, you know, one of my things, and I recently talked about it at length when we uh, reviewed Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. uh, is I am bothered when you know movies are presented as biographies, and that they pl- and they play fast and loose with the facts of the person's mm-hmm. life. I don't mind it so much when they kind of compress things. Or if they have a character that kind of is three characters combined because they can't, you know, you, you only have, you know, whatever, two hours or so in an average movie to uh, to portray something. And, you, you know, you have to do some stuff just for uh, the sake of getting through the story. I, but I don't like when they blatantly change things. In this instance, from my reading up on it, I don't think they seriously changed anything. Uh, they did say uh, that they kind of compressed the European tour with an American tour, and they kind of put it all together. But other than that, uh, they didn't really make things up. There was the scene, if you'll recall, in the movie when they argue at at a uh, at a dinner. And they yeah. like they start throwing food, and people think that they're you know it's part of a bit, but they're actually angry at each other. And they said that the uh, you know the conversation there is is kind of what they surmise must have been said, mm. because there's no record to tell you what they exactly said. Right. But I don't think they took real liberties with the uh, you know with the, with the lives. And, yeah. And that's important to me in you know in a biography. I agree. That's uh, you and I. I think we've both have been fans long enough that we have a history of knowing some things, and then seeing the movie, you know, encourages you to sort of read up again and refresh your memory. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's my understanding too, Paul. It's interesting that how they just compress things because they wanted to show them at a high point. So it's briefly 1937, and they're at a high point in the career, and then. It's suddenly 1953, and they're at a low point in their career. And just like you said, it's they compress two different tours, one that takes place like in the mid-40s, and then the one that really took place in 53, they compress those together. And then uh, the one thing that I was, and I wouldn't say I was disappointed, because the point of this movie is to tell their story, their high and their low, and what they were like as friends at the high and the low and it's interesting to me, it's like if somebody's not familiar with them, they might think that maybe the two of them didn't talk between 1937 and 1953. That's the only thing I sort of thought the movie missed, because you sort of see that all that happened in 37, and then sort of in 53, they're sort of like, well, how have you been? What have you been up to? And you, you think maybe they haven't talked to each other, and it sort of misses that they, they still had a, a run of successful movies in the early and mid-40s. Uh, before their careers sort of started uh, falling down. So that's the only thing I thought it missed, but I don't think that was the point of the movie. So just like you, that didn't bother me because the story they were telling, they told well. Yeah, I think you have a good point there that if you don't know any better, you might think that they broke up and got back together uh, because what they show in the movie, which is true, 
is in that early contract negotiation, Laurel kind of cuts ties, and Hal Roach says, well, you know, he, he calls his bluff. They basically play chicken. And he has Ali under contract, so he forces him under the contract to make a movie with a substitute actor who's effectively taking the Stan Laurel role in that movie. And they do make that a point of contention between them where, you know, later on when they have that, uh, that fight that I just mentioned earlier, you know, Stan says to him, you never should have made a movie without me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the fact is, and it's, it's a well-known fact is that when Oliver Hardy passed away in, I think it was 1957, right. uh, I, I, that, you know, Laurel, officially retired and said i'm not making I, I you know he made no public appearances without oliver hardy around right which yeah, you know i always found that to be a little heartwarming too yes that's amazing and touching to know that yeah it was he you know the two of them were so important to each other it's like you were pointing out that one time oliver hardy was sort of put in a position he had to do something but then stan laurel refuse later to do anything without him and i just i just think that's wonderful especially when you hear and know that he spent all the rest of his life after oliver hardy had passed away still writing scripts for laurel and hardy i mean he had that passion for them so he was writing scripts for them even though he knew they would never be done that's just wonderful yeah i I agree and i i i it's sad and they really didn't hit on it uh one one of the sad things is that uh, you know towards the end of his life Oliver Hardy was pretty much broke, mm-hmm. and they, mm-hmm. they don't really hit touch on that. I, I, I'm pretty sure that you know Stan paid for Oliver's funeral, and you know like things like that. And then I you know they what I read about it is that he was so heartbroken by it he could not bring himself to go to it, and uh-huh. when they when they asked him about it he just said Babe would understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a deep friendship. Yeah, it really is. And, and it, it get, you know, again, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. that's we, You know, it's funny. We, we The people listening are probably thinking, well, this sounds like a downer, but this is a wonderful movie. It's this so really, funny. Yeah, it, it really is not. We're, we're, we're focusing on some of the sadder points in it, uh, but it is not a sad movie. It's like I said, it's kind of bittersweet. It's, there's definitely some... Uh, some you know comical elements to it uh and there's definitely heartwarming elements to it it's not it, it is not a depressing movie by any stretch but there's moments in it where it's just you know kind of melancholy yeah it's uh you're absolutely right that's another good word it's a beautiful movie that's the thing it it really is beautiful the way it's shot is just you know very loving the way it portrays the characters is very loving and it, it's filled as much as it has some sadness in it it's filled with joy much of the time too i mean even when they're you know at their low point and struggling in some of those theaters that you know they no one's even coming the two of them are having fun conversations with each other and they're going out there and they're having a wonderful time doing their material and you just see the joy that the two of them had performing and you get to see some of the routines and just you know they're in their element on the stage they said the there's a routine they show them with with the doors going in and out the doors they actually said that that was kind of made up for the movie oh, oh interesting it uh, was it's well really done. good and it it feels like a laurel and hardy skit 
Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. You know, unfortunately, I, I don't think there's any footage of the shows that they, the live shows that they performed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had to kind of piece together what they could about it, and they came up with that bit and just said, you know, like you said, it feels like a Laurel and Hardy bit. Uh, and and it's great. It's it's very funny when you're watching it, and it's kind of funny <laughs> to see the execution of it and how they're doing it and everything, and the timing. Uh, oh, yeah. That's one of the things about this thing, and, and as I said, I think Steve Coogan kind of carries this movie only because he's just so good in the role. He just mm-hmm. he totally embodies that part. He becomes Stan Laurel in my mind. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. he's an actor I'm not particularly familiar with. Otherwise, I'm not sure if I've ever seen him in anything else. But I loved him in this role. Uh, I agree with you completely, Paul. He totally, you you look at him and you think you're watching Stan Laurel for an hour and a half because everything about every mannerism, every performance, every word he speaks, it's all just like Stan Laurel. And the way he turns it on and off when he's performing or out in public versus when he's, you know, in the hotel room, it's just how that happens. Um, I, I love it. And and I'm, we're like you. We haven't seen much of Steve Coogan. I mean, I know that he's a very popular comedian in the UK. And Ruth and I watch a lot of British TV shows, but we watch mostly mysteries. We watch a lot of comedies, though. But I know he's very well known for uh, Spitting Image, which was a political satire show I can remember from way back in the 80s, the one with the puppets that was a lot of political satire. And then He's been very well known for the last 10 or 15 years for a character he created called Alan Partridge that's had a TV series and a movie and a lot of specials, and he does stand-up tours and stuff doing that. So he's very well known over there, but he has not done much in the U.S., so it's not surprising that we haven't seen much of him. Yeah, it, it makes me want to see more of him, though. Mm. You know, he, he just, like I said, he just did so well in it. He sounds like him, he looks like him, and, and he... Like you say, he kind of turns it on and off when he's performing, when he's off stage. You know, Stan Laurel in in the movies and in the shorts, uh, he's usually playing kind of a simpleton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's far from it in this movie. And, and it's, you know, it, it feels so real that this is the way his personality was. Again, um, I don't really know. <laughs> but but yeah. that's what it feels like to me. It it just feels as if it's totally accurate. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, that said about him, and again, I thought John Riley was almost unrecognizable in the role and he looks perfect. Yes. As Oliver Hardy. And and I uh, you know, he 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 doesn't whereas Steve Coogan sounded like Stan Laurel, John Riley doesn't sound like Oliver Hardy. That's probably the one weakness, and again, I, like I said, that's the one area where I kind of felt I could recognize him, was I could hear his voice every once in a while, that it was John Riley. Uh, but that said, appearance-wise, he looked just like him. Performance-wise, he also seemed to embody the role very, very well. I'm glad you said that, because I was thinking the same thing, that one of the scenes I remember the most, and you can just see again, is when he's placed that bet on the horse, and he's hoping to win enough money to buy a bracelet for his wife. And he gets the newspaper and sees he didn't win. And he just, he gets so angry and he wads up the paper and throws it away. And then he sees a group of school kids across the street watching him. And immediately the Hardy, Oliver Hardy turns on and he's performing for them. 
because mm-hmm. he didn't want them to have seen him any other way. I just yeah. love that scene. They they touch on without ever making it a focus of the movie or you know something that would be depressing, but they touch on the fact that they both had uh, numerous marriages yeah. and that they had to pay alimony, so their finances were difficult because of that. And they also touch on the fact that Oliver Hardy had a gambling problem. Uh, and and that, was, that affected him financially big time. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? I was just going to add that I love they both eventually found women that were good for them and loved them and stuck with them, you know, mm-hmm. till the end. But I'm glad you brought them up because I wanted to do that next. So uh, <laughs> I, just, I just found that to be a fascinating part. First of all, the fact that Oliver Hardy and looking at photos, it looks to be very, very good casting. Oliver yeah. Hardy at 350 pounds married this petite woman <laughs> that yeah. was so physically the opposite of him. Uh, and yet she had a fierce personality and was fiercely protective of him. Yes. And, and she was terrific and, and very, very, her character, I thought her character was very likable. Uh, yeah. Stan's wife, on the other hand, was a little domineering and, Almost, I would say, uh, you know, like kind of was looking down upon Oliver and his wife and wasn't really as friendly to them as as you would, you know, as you would hope. It's interesting because you're absolutely right. That's definitely how she comes off on the surface. And yet what I loved about both of them and I, I went to sort of try to read and it looks like, you know, as many times as many failed marriages as both of them had, it looks like they did finally end up with the right women in their lives at the end. But yeah, they they both were so protective of their husbands that, and I think it came out in, in different ways, but also I know what you're saying with Stan Laurel's wife, since she had been an actress as well and a dancer, you know, there's a little bit of that to her. I love the scene where, you know, uh, she and Oliver Hardy's wife are arguing over whether or not they're really Hollywood. (laughs) And she's insisting she's not Hollywood. And Oliver Hardy's wife says, you're the definition of Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you could even, you know, they, they made her a little condescending to Oliver and his wife, but they also gave her kind of motivation that made sense that she felt her husband was unappreciated because he was, not to to belittle Oliver in any way, but he was the brains behind the mm-hmm. the the duo. He was the one writing the script. He was the one negotiating contracts. He was the one who was kind of setting them up on this tour that they were on. He mm-hmm. was trying to sell the rights to the the Robin Hood movie that he was writing. Excuse me, that he was writing to the to the uh, studio. You know, he was doing all all the behind the scenes work. Oliver was a brilliant comedian and and obviously an affable man. But he was not a businessman like like Stan was, right? And his Definitely. wife felt that you know that he deserved more credit because of that, and you could understand where a spouse would feel that way. Yep, she was fiercely protective of him. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so it, it's not just you know she's not being presented as evil for evil's sake. That's that's the I think what I come down to is I, I wouldn't like if that was the case. Right, she, they gave her more dimensions, and her performance really carried that off well. And I love that scene near the end when, uh, for the last performance when she's the one that reaches over and squeezes Oliver Hardy's wife's hand. And you sort of 
then you get that same sort of mirror image scene of just like we saw a little earlier between Stan and Ollie. You get that scene between the two of them sort of saying, yeah, we don't always get along, but you mean a lot to me. And I love that little scene, too. Yeah, and it, it does give, you know, it, it takes her out of the, <laughs> you know, it, it, you, that you're not going to think of her as a shrew. <laughs> you know, for, again, for a little bit of lack of a better word. And I, I just have to jump in here and say, uh, don't you really wish, as much as all three of us love the adventures of Robin Hood, and as much as all three of us love Laurel and Hardy, don't you really wish we could do an, an Is It Jaws episode about Robin Good? <laughs> yes, I wish we could. Absolutely. Oh, that would be a favorite. <laughs> Now they they made over a hundred and I think they said well it was over a hundred films together. Stan yeah. and Ollie, uh, you know some of them shorts, some of them uh, were were you know full feature length movies. Uh, and what's what I find very interesting is probably they may have been the most successful making the transition from silent films to talkies because. When you look at their body of work, as successful as they were in silent films, they actually were better when the mm-hmm. talkies started. And most of the people, especially the comedic, you know, the comic actors who were around in those days uh, that were big in the silent films, very few of them made the transition to talkies. And the ones that did, uh, usually they, they weren't as successful. I agree with you completely. Paul, that's Laurel and Hardy really did. You're right. You look at their body of work, and they were hugely popular during the silent era, and yet they were even more popular during the talkies. You're absolutely right. And, you know, you and I have talked before about how much we love Buster Keaton. And, you know, I, I do love Buster Keaton, and I think he's the greatest silent comedian. And while he transitioned to talkies he was never as successful in talkies as he was in silent films and he sort of ended up becoming a second banana in talkies as opposed to the star that he was in silent films you're right laurel and hardy were the two that really bridged both and i've seen where they kind of put that on the fact that he had a deep voice yes and that when the talkies came around, that's just not what people had pictured him as sounding like. And they had a tough time seeing him and accepting that that's the way he spoke, which is almost, uh, you know, the, uh, the story behind singing in the rain, which we, which (laughs) I I covered that. I I guess I covered that with Blaine, I think. Yeah. If my memory is right. Uh, But that's, you know, it's, it's interesting how that, you know, that phenomena occurred. Right, uh, right, and that's something as simple as that—that that the you know the the way your voice sounds would you know totally kill a a, a major major career. I, absolutely, yeah. I had heard the same thing. His sort of deep gravelly voice—it just wasn't what people expected. <laughs> now, of of comedy duos, especially of that era, uh, I would say you know you have laurel and hardy and you have abbott and costello that's real to mm-hmm. me those are really some people will put martin and lewis there but i feel that's a tier below um i love them both i really do but they're very very different and i think that's one of the reasons why i can love them both as much as i do uh laurel and hardy were a different type of comedic comic duo because although ali is the straight man in the t- of the two he really wasn't, because he was often the com, you know, the the source of comedy himself. Mm. 
So it, you know, they didn't have a traditional pairing where you had one who was truly a straight man and one who was kind of the buffoon. Yeah, yeah. And no, they, they talk that... about how, how uh, you know, in the Abbott and Costello movies and TV show and, and shorts, uh, you know, Abbott was openly mean to Costello. Yeah. Whereas Hardy would be, he would get frustrated with, frustrated, with Stan's yeah. actions, but he was never really mean to him. That's absolutely right. I agree because, yeah, you always see that Oliver Hardy just sort of gets pushed. It's like Laurel pushes all of his buttons, and he becomes that blustering, sort of frustrated person, but he never is mean, and I agree. And I'm just like you. I like Abbott and Costello movies, too, And but I think you're right. It is a very different type of movie, and I I love that scene, actually, where Stan Laurel is standing in the street staring up at a huge uh, uh, billboard advertising an Abbott and Costello movie, and he sort of just looks at it so sadly, and it's sort of like he's seeing that himself. You know, it's a different era because mm -hmm. it's a very different type of comedy that's popular at that time in the 50s. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much on the same wavelength because I was going to mention that scene. <laughs> We always are, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's one of the reasons I enjoy talking to you guys because we agree on everything. <laughs> Although you only gave, uh, if I remember right, you only gave March of the Wounded Soldiers a Jaws two, didn't you? That's true. That's, that's right. I'm gonna always hold <laughs> that against you. <laughs> Don't worry, I never let her forget that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so, she still blames it on the uh, she didn't grow up seeing it at uh, at Thanksgiving, right. so she didn't have the nostalgia factor. Plus, I, she has so many other Laurel and Hardy movies that are her favorites above it. <laughs> I, I can't argue with you on that. I, well, while it's on my top list of all time, it's you know I can understand where it's something that might not hit that for you. It's, it's interesting too to bring up March of the Wooden Soldiers because you know besides the fact that we all got to talk about that before and love it, it's. I did not remember, at least, if I didn't know it in the past or I learned it for the first time in sort of reading after seeing this, that that's the movie where Stan Laurel and Hal Roach had their first falling out. They really became bitter enemies over the two of them having very different ideas of how that movie should be done. And in the end, Stan Laurel won, and the movie got made the way he wanted but Hal Roach really resented him for that. So that seemed to be the beginning of their falling out. Now, do you know what Hal Roach wanted to do differently? I couldn't find that. No, I didn't find that information. I read two or three different sources on that, but none of them mentioned that. Just that it was where the two, where their, you know, their conflict began and that Stan Laurel won, I guess maybe because of his popularity at the time, but Hal Roach uh, always resented him for it. Hmm, very interesting. I, since, considering it is one of my favorite movies of all time, I'm going to just assume that Stan had the right idea of how to make it and that Hal was wrong. But I it was, agree. <laughs> for what it's worth, Hal was the, uh, the brains behind pairing the two of them up in the first place, though, so you do have to give him some credit as well. And it's interesting that you mention that. He does get a lot of credit for that, but that it's actually the was the idea of a director um, that worked for Hal Roach that thought the two of them would fit uh, and presented that idea to Hal. 
so Hal sometimes gets the credit, but it was actually one of the directors that had directed both of them that thought they would work well together. Do you remember their, his name, Ruth? Mm-mm. I remember looking it up. We'll have to look that up because I was really interested in hearing that. And they were saying that he actually worked with Stan Laurel to help sort of refine their routines early on. Oh, that, that is very interesting. And I guess, you know, sometimes when you're the, uh, you know, when you're the man in charge yes, and someone, you know, one of your subordinates comes up with a good idea, you get to take credit for it. You Absolutely. Know, it's, yeah, I, you're the... The producer gets credit because they have the money and the power. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, I often think of that with Apple. Like Steve, Steve oh. Jobs gets so much credit for everything, but I don't think he's the guy who was in a lab, laboratory inventing the iPhone. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, he, that's he, why he you have the, the. Sorry, go on. Yeah, you know, well, I'm saying he was the financial guy. Yeah. Or the financial. I'm not saying he didn't have vision and that he wasn't a genius of some sort, but he didn't create the iPhone. Or the iPod, yeah, that's right. The you hear a lot of that when um, uh, when you hear about uh, Wozniak as well. When they talk about you know engineers have a lot of respect for Wozniak because he was sort of like the silent technical guy behind Apple, while uh, Steve Jobs was the front man who was just great at at ideas, you know, big picture ideas and presenting things. And Wozniak was the guy behind the scenes, sort of coming up with the engineering. Ruth found that guy's name, Leo McCreary. Okay. okay. Yeah, I, I know. That. I know that name. Yeah. Uh, so it was actually his idea because he had been directing both of them separately, and he went to Hal Roach and said, "These two need to be together. They would fit together well." And then he worked with Stan Laurel to refine their routines. Well, it was a, a brilliant pairing because uh, I, I don't think it's an obvious one. And, no, not at all. And to to actually see that and say, "I think this will work," you know that that takes an insight that I think is. You know, just tremendous. I think that's wonderful. Uh, so McCrary should get a lot more credit for that. You know, one of the things I found interesting about this movie is, with the exception of Way Out West, which I don't believe is really one of their better known movies, even though I love it, mm. uh, they don't focus on any of the big movies that they made. You don't see Sons of the Desert. You don't see the music box, although somebody mentions it at one point. Yeah. Uh, you don't see March of the Wooden Soldiers. There's none of that that's focused on at all in this movie. Yeah. It's it's really just, you know, the, the opening scene with Way Out West, and then it's the tour that they're on, and the movie that they hope to make, but you don't see them filming any other movies. Yeah. So it's a little different than the focus I would anticipate for a movie like this. But I, again, I think it was a, a really good choice because I ended up loving what they did with it. I just, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's a great comparison. You just mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody. You know that that's more of a what you would expect sort of film. You know, following the growth of the career to the heights that it went to before the downfall, and as opposed to this movie, which tells you that they were at their height, but really doesn't show you. You know, you, you get told they were at the height in 1937, but you don't see the clamoring fans, you know, at that point in time or the big box offices or lines, you know, for the their movies at the theaters or anything like that. So that's a really good point, Paul. Mm-hmm. I think it left space for them to be together and to share their friendship and just, you know, the traveling, the journey, the different stage shows, different atmosphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think... You know, you you showed the strength of the friendship by showing how they how the friendship dealt with adversity. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, 
know, when they were at the height of their careers, I don't think they had as much diversity, uh, excuse me, adversity. Uh, But, you know, when they're on this tour and they first go out to almost empty theaters Mm. and they're putting on their show and, and the disappointment, you know, that they're not pulling in the crowds and then to show that by the end they had a full house of people who were roaring laughing. Right. You know, it, it's almost, you know, it, it, it is effectively a comeback, even though it's kind of not, because it's the yeah. kind of, it's, it's this, it's a comeback, but it's also the swan song. The swan song. Yeah, it's a perfect phrase. Now, I, I really liked the way this was filmed. Now, this is directed by John Baird. Uh, I'm just going to take a quick look at his filmography, because I'm not familiar with it offhand. His first movie is Patrick Keelty Live. That's a TV series, actually. Uh, I, his first feature film is Green Street Hooligans in 2005. Then he has one called Cass in 2008. Filth in 2013, which looks to be a comedy from the picture that's on there. And then a bunch of some more TV series, and I, I assume they're all British TV series. And then this. So he doesn't really have a, a filmography of movies that I'm familiar with at all. Uh, but I love the way he filmed this episode because, you know, it has that period piece feel and it's, it's in regular color, you know, nothing special done to it, but I still like, I walk away feeling that it was in sepia, (laughs) even though it's not. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but now as I'm envisioning, envisioning the film in my mind, you're absolutely right, Paul. There's so many browns and golds and grays yeah really nice good cinematography cinematography and the the framing of the the sequences and the editing just all really top-notch so well done and and i i don't blame them for releasing it on december 28th in hopes of getting some academy award nominations and i'm disappointed that it didn't get the buzz the word of mouth and the respect to get some of that Although the reviews of it have been largely positive. I have that same disappointment. It, it, you're right. The reviews are very positive. It did get lots of nominations, but it didn't really win anything. I know Jack C. Riley got a nomination, a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor, and Steve Coogan got a BAFTA nomination for Best Actor, but neither one of them won. I don't think the film itself or the director was nominated for anything, but... Uh, I the movie to me it's got you know Oscar written all over it. I just absolutely loved everything about it, and I'm like you. I was a bit dismayed that it didn't create more Oscar buzz. The two awards that I'm just looking on the Wikipedia page, the two awards it got, uh, John C. Riley got Best Actor in the Boston Society of Film Critics Awards, hmm. and. Uh, he also got Best Body of Work in the San Diego Film Critics Society Awards. Hmm. Uh, it was nominated for movies in the British Academy Film Awards, the British Independent Film Awards, uh, Critics' Choice Movie Awards, and Golden Globe Awards. But uh, none of those were winners. Yeah, they it's were a shame. nominations. Uh, and it does have in the Critics' Choice Awards. It has uh, John Riley nominated as best actor in a comedy so mm. for their they're, they're listing this as a comedy and although mm. there's funny moments in this i don't really see it as a comedy i mm. i would 
I, if I was going to have to pigeonhole it, I would just call it a biopic. But, uh, you know, if I, I would still say it's more of a drama than a comedy, but it does have some funny moments in it. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And just beautifully filmed. Yeah. I was going to say the thing, it, the movie warms my heart when I watch it. It's just from the opening scene, that opening scene, you're talking about the director being so good that opening tracking shot when they follow Laurel and Hardy from their dressing room out across the back lot into the set. That scene is so long and there's no cuts. It just follows them through all of that. Just imagine, you know, how perfect everything had to be to get that shot right. I just love it. There's so many things about this movie that's just glorious. And I, I just watch it and it warms my heart from that opening scene all the way to the ending scene on stage there in Ireland. The the movie is just captivating. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, before we get to our ratings, any other points that you guys would like to make? Do you have anything written? I would say go and watch it if you haven't seen it. You'll laugh and you'll cry and you'll be really happy you saw it. Uh, that's really good. I saw Ruth's eyes light up, so I knew she had something yeah. to say. So. <laughs> I, I agree, and I'm hoping this finds its audience you know, mm-hmm. on the home video home video front. I'm hoping right. word of mouth spreads and that people discover this movie because I definitely think it's worth seeing. Maybe that's what will happen, because it's definitely an intimate. That's another word I would use. It's an intimate movie, because it's really, like you said, Paul, the two of them carry the whole thing. It's a movie about these two people, and maybe that will work better on at home on people's TV sets rather than pulling audiences into a big theater to sit. Yeah, I think I think it may. It doesn't necessarily require a, you know, a big movie theater screen. You don't need to see this in IMAX. <laughs> so that brings us to the big question is it yours Ruth should go first uh, I will say absolutely without a doubt yes it is Jaws <laughs> we put her on the spot there didn't we <laughs> <laughs> oh I, I knew I knew exactly what I would say <laughs> I, I had a I had a uh, pretty good suspicion that that's what she would say because she loves this movie. So when I mentioned, oh, we should watch this again, she was like, okay, tonight. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing it a second time, no question. Yeah, I, I will say absolutely it's Jaws again because I love Jaws. I can rewatch Jaws anytime it's on. I could rewatch this anytime it was on. Okay, yeah, I'm going to say... I want to say this is Jaws, and I definitely think it might be. Uh, I need I need to view it a second time to know for sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go with either a very high Jaws 2, two or Jaws. I'm not 100% sure yet. I, I also got to – I've got to separate whether or not I think this is Jaws just because I love the source material so much. Oh, uh. yeah, yeah, see. Yeah, you're, being like, you're trying to if, be objective. If, <laughs> yeah, if somebody is seeing this who doesn't have that innate affection for the actors, uh, and I mean the actors who are being portrayed, uh, will they will they love it the same way that the three of us do? Mm. You know what? I'm I'm gonna I'm leaning towards yes, it is Jaws, but I need to see it the second time to know for sure. I I really like though. You've got a very thoughtful approach there because. We really only have talked to people about this movie who we know are Laurel and Hardy fans. 
for those listening, we were all sort of talking before we started recording, and we have a friend, Brian Mulvey, who's in the podcasting comic community. He's not on them, but he's a big supporter of lots of podcasts, and he's a huge fan, and we exchange messages with him. Vic Sage from the Retroists, uh, we exchange messages with him, and uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous, and Stephen Robertson, uh, who live in uh, Scotland and sort of near where uh, Stan Laurel grew up. And so we're all sort of collectively Laurel and Hardy fans. And it's interesting because I haven't really talked to anyone who's seen this movie who isn't a Laurel and Hardy fan. So you've got a really good point there, Paul. You'll have to let us know what you find out when you watch it with someone who hasn't, who doesn't have that connection. I think it was way below many, many people's radar. That's why the box office was so low. Uh, when, when we did go to see it, I had to go scouring you know, the internet to try and find a theater that was nearby that was playing it, which is, you know, it was disappointing. I, I wanted it to be, you know, I want this to be popular. Yeah, I do too. I would love for it to have been a, a big, huge hit. Uh, before we go, why don't you tell everybody again where they can find you? All right. Well, uh, we are Ruth and Darren, which also can is stands for RAD, R-A-D. So we have the RAD Adventures Network. We do several podcasts there. We have Trekker Talk, which is about Ron Randall's Trekker. And we have Xenozoic Xenophiles. That's about Xenozoic Tales, the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series by Mark Schultz. And there's Warlord Worlds, uh, where we talk about everything by Mike Grell, including the Warlord, of course, Green Arrow, and so much more. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at RadAdventuresNetwork.com, iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you look. And I just realized we had said we were going to talk about and we never did. You guys went to the Laurel and Hardy Museum recently. Oh, yeah. And I, I forgot, totally forgot to bring that up. And I didn't even know it existed until you contacted me and asked me what size T-shirt I wear. And I tell you, wasn't it? I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciated the t-shirt that you send me and how much I enjoy wearing it because I just think it's great from the Laurel, Hardy, Laurel and Hardy Museum, which most people up here don't even know exists. So they see the shirt. It's, it's, it's a good talking point, and it, it's great. I love it. Uh, but, you know, what did you find anything new there, anything about them that, that – fascinated you or was there any piece of memorabilia that you just thought was great or anything like that yeah it's i'm glad you remembered for us to come back to that because it, it was easy to forget we've had such a great time chatting but yeah it's it's a really nice little museum so it's in harlem georgia which is about an hour east of atlanta and it's the hometown of oliver hardy so that's why the museum's there and for us, it's convenient because we go to Dragon Con most years down in Atlanta. And depending on which way we drive, because we always drive to save money, depending on which way we drive, we can sort of go right past it. So it's not too far out of our way if we decide, well, we'll drive this route. So uh, it's a delight to be able to stop by. It's something that I would say anybody who's a Laurel and Hardy fan who it wouldn't be too far out of the way for should definitely go. I don't want to encourage somebody to drive too far out of the way because it is a small museum, but it's a beautiful museum if you're a Laurel and Hardy fan. It's a, it's a standalone building. It's basically two rooms. The front room is a huge sort of lobby-type area that's packed with memorabilia from ceiling to floor, shelves and shelves of it. 
things from the early 1900s all the way through recent things. It's like the, statues and posters, posters and, and books and uh, pictures. Yeah, so many things. It's just wonderful. To, and you can just, even though it's just one huge room, you can browse forever because you're looking at all the little things. And they even have some nice little standees like they, they've have a car that looks like it's like just a facade but it looks like laurel and hardy are driving they're sitting in the front seats and you get to sort of sit in the back seat so it looks like you're riding in the car with laurel and hardy that's sort of neat and then they have a second small room in the back where laurel and hardy films play all day so there's always laurel and hardy films playing there and when we've gone we found it to be popular with like school groups i think we'll bring kids there to sort of like you know, introduce them to Laurel and Hardy, and then it seems to be really popular with excursions for nursing homes, you know, for people who would remember their movies, so... People uh, like us. But it, it's, <laughs> it's a lovely little museum that I would say, you know, if for anybody that it's in that general area, it's worth going to. So, Paul, what you need to do is just plan to come to Dragon Con with us some year and go. I would love to do that. <laughs> Well, and, and as we've talked about a little bit, Darren and I have had an opportunity to get together. We sat, we had dinner together, we had a great talk. We've, you know, we really enjoyed each other's company. But I have yet to be in a room with Ruth, and I look forward to getting that opportunity at some point. Oh, that'll be great. We should meet up. That's right. It may be one of those times it'll be at the museum in Harlem, Georgia, which they also have a Laurel and Hardy festival every other year, which we don't ever go to because it's not at, around the time of the year as Dragon Con. But uh, it's delightful. And I'll just mention one other thing. We were talking about other friends earlier. So our friends and Paul's friends to Martin Gray and Stephen Robertson, they live in Edinburgh and in Scotland. And they have been to the Laurel and Hardy Museum that's in Stan Laurel's hometown there in, uh, in northwestern England near the Scottish border. So they've been to that museum and they say it's wonderful too. So... It's great that there are two Laurel and Hardy museums in each of the two guys' hometowns. That is great. And I would love to get to either one of them. <laughs> Just make it both. Yeah, I would love to get to both. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> right. Well, guys, thank you for coming on. And I always enjoy when we have these the opportunity to talk. So we'll come up with some more things to talk about, I guarantee it. Sounds good to me. Uh, that will be wonderful. Anytime, Paul. Uh, love your show and love any chance to chat with you. And same same right back to you. Mm -hmm. uh, so I look forward to it, and I hope everybody enjoyed listening to us, and I hope you come back in two weeks to listen again. Bye-bye. What are you looking for, Stan? I'm looking for a fair price for a long and hardy picture, and you know it. Our pictures sell all around the world, and we haven't got a dime. That's because we keep getting divorced. No, it's because you're a cheapskate who got rich off our backs. Oh, come on now, Stan. He is. He's a cheapskate, a skinflint, and a, and a parvenu. A parvenu? He thinks because my contract's up and yours isn't, that I won't be able to go anyplace else, and I'll have to take what he's offering. Wait, 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 wait. What's a parvenu? Well, it's, it's someone who started out with nothing, got rich, but has no class. Look it up in the dictionary, Hal. There's a picture of you. Oh, you think you're some sort of smartass, huh? Well, guess what? I'm smarter. Has he told you yet? We're setting up on our own. Hal, it might be best if you could see your way to a small raise. You're setting up on your own, huh? Well, how about this? Babe's still under contract with me, and I ain't releasing him. You can't have Hardy without Laurel. Well, that's what you think. <laughs>